the last couple of months, I've been speaking about the Noble Eightfold Path. And uh, we're, we're down to the last three path factors now. Um, right effort, right mindfulness, and right concentration. And so what I wanted to do today is talk about right concentration and right mindfulness and right effort and what they are and how to use them and what the results will be. So the Buddha said uh, for right effort, there are four kinds of right effort necessary to, um, to uh, have a meditation practice that's skillful. And they are right effort to prevent unskillful thoughts from arising, to abandon unskillful thoughts once they have arisen, to maintain skillful thoughts once they're there, and to develop skillful thoughts that have not yet arisen. So the question is, well, what is a skillful thought? What do we need to maintain or prevent? So the Buddha went in and said, well, you know, a skillful thought is uh, a, a thought that's based in generosity, a thought that's based in kindness, and a thought that's based in wisdom. And what would be an unskillful thought? An unskillful thought would be one that's based or rooted in greed, in hatred, and delusion. Now, greed, hatred, and delusion are the three poisons that we need to try to avoid. There are four kinds of mindfulness meditation that we can do. A mindfulness of the mind, mindfulness of mental objects, mindfulness of the body, and mindfulness of sensations. Now, um, mindfulness has really taken a hold in America. They're used, it's being used as a therapy. I, I think, if I'm not mistaken, UCLA has a whole program of mindfulness meditation. And, and a lot of people are using mindfulness meditation in a non-religious way, uh, which is fine. It still works that way. But uh, Buddhism, basically, there are four ways to look at Buddhism. It's either a religion, a lifestyle, a therapy, or it's a philosophy. So we can use mindfulness in those four aspects to, to enhance our life and gain wisdom into the true nature of our reality. So let's talk about mindfulness of sensation. Mindfulness of sensation is designed to become aware of the sensations of the body. And there are three that we have available to us. The first sensation is pleasant. The second sensation is unpleasant. And the third sensation is neutral. Generally speaking, we are not aware of the neutral sensations. It doesn't get our attention. So we're aware of the pleasurable, pleasant, unpleasurable, unpleasant sensations that are occurring. And one of the techniques we can use to um, become aware of the sensations of the body is to do body scanning, starting at the top of our head and working our way down to the tip of our toes and then coming back up and then going back down. And what we're trying to find is simply, is it a pleasant sensation or an unpleasant sensation? We don't want to go any further than that. 
We don't want to dissect it. We don't want to have a story about it. We simply want to register pleasant or unpleasant. Now, I found when I first started meditating that I had a lot of unpleasant sensations. Uh, my knees hurt. My ankles felt uh, uh, uncomfortable. My back sometimes felt strained. My shoulders sometimes were stiff and, and tight. And so I was able to find plenty of sensations, most of them negative, to, to, to say, yes, pleasant, unpleasant, pleasant, unpleasant. So I would do that 10, 15, 20 minutes, pleasant, unpleasant, pleasant, unpleasant. And then I would go into a state of reflection. And that's when the three aspects of Buddhist wisdom become apparent and useful in mindfulness meditation. So the idea is we want to use our awareness of the sensations of our body to, to see reality the way it really happens in our present moment experience. And there are three things that we become aware of. The first one is impermanence. We, we find that uh, becoming aware of the sensations, we notice that all the sensations lasted for a while and then they went away. They didn't last forever. And another sensation replaced it. And then another sensation replaced it. And sometimes the first sensation got stronger and sometimes it got weaker and then sometimes it left, but then it came back again. So we're starting to see that, yes, all the sensations that I became aware of in my mindfulness meditation were ultimately impermanent. Now, taking that insight, taking that wisdom, and then applying it to the world around us, we say, is everything in the world impermanent? Or are there things that don't change and last forever? And so we would reflect on that. And we would probably, given enough time, come to the conclusion that, yes, everything in the world is always changing in a constant state of flux is impermanent which leads us to understand there's no place to stand. We can't define our territory because our territory is always changing. That is the first deep insight that comes from mindfulness meditation. The second insight from mindfulness meditation is dukkha, unsatisfactoriness, suffering, which is the word that's most often used, but it's a, it's a little heavy. Suffering, uh, most of the stuff we don't suffer through, but we feel a little uncomfortable. We think it could be better. We think, why is it happening to me? We have all these sort of thought patterns coming up because of this suffering, this, this feeling that, um, that the world isn't as good as I thought it was going to be. And so we would apply our insight to the sensations of mindfulness meditation. And we'd say, is everything that I became aware of, all the sensations, ultimately unsatisfactory? Well, as you progress in your meditation, you'll find that you'll have a variety of sensations. Some are good, some are bad, but 
but they're not all bad. And then you have to say, yeah, but you know what? I had some really good sensations. I wish they had lasted longer. I didn't want them to end. So I can't really say that all the sensations were ultimately unsatisfactory until I factored in impermanence. And when those pleasant sensations ultimately changed, because they have to, we noticed that in the first insight, then I was sad. I realized at that point, even the good sensations are ultimately unsatisfactory because of impermanence, because of change, because of flux. Okay, so now we've, we've, we've got these two working. and We say, okay, everything's impermanent. Everything ultimately turns out to be unsatisfactory because everything is impermanent. And now we come to the third aspect of Buddhist wisdom, anatta, also known as not-self or not-soul, if you were 2,600 years ago. And now we would say to ourselves, okay, I had all these sensations. I became aware of them. I, I was able to feel them, and, and they were impermanent. I have to admit that. They oftentimes and always did lead to ultimate suffering because everything changed. But did, they, did these sensations have an essence? Did they, did they have a quality that was independent of conditions? And then you would reflect on that and you would say, perhaps, well, as I reflected on all these sensations, they seem to be conditional. They seem to need to have other things happening for them to exist. That they didn't exist because they were there. They existed because a thousand other things were there. And the sensation was the result. Okay, so, essence. Did the sensations have an independent, unchanging essence? And the idea would be no. Upon further reflection, I have come to the conclusion that every sensation was conditional, did not exist independently. Now, we would take that insight and we'd apply it to the world around us. And we would say, is there anything in the world that stands alone, that's independent? Is there anything that has an essence, a quality that is, is self-contained? And we would think and say, I don't think so. I, I can't think of anything that stands alone. The mountain needs the earth and it needs sand, and it needs rock for it to exist, and the tree needs to have roots and nourishment and water and sunshine for the tree to exist. And, and then we turn that to ourselves and we say, do I exist independently? Is there some part of me that is my genuine essence, quality, or self? And it seems that there is, at a relative level, at an intellectual level, there does seem to be a self, a personality, 
and ego. And that came about early in our life, and it has grown with us, and it has become what we think we are. And when we listen to our thoughts, it's us thinking, and that little voice is my little voice speaking to me inside my head. So I must exist independently at some level in order to survive and exist in this very complicated environment called Earth. And you would be absolutely correct in thinking that way. And we have a lot of psychologists who can name all the parts of the ego or personality and show you how they were constructed and what they've come to mean to you and how you respond and react because of the way you think you exist. But now, is there another part too that I missed? Is there something else that I overlooked? And that would be the ultimate reality of self. That in the ultimate reality of self, we do not exist in the way we think we do. We are not an event. We do not stand apart from everything else. We are a process, a continuation, moment by moment, that seems to have a rigid frame that allows us to be recognized and we can recognize ourselves because of the way we think, speak, and act. But that is more of a delusion than a reality because every moment of every day, we are evolving. We are growing. We are changing. We are becoming our next person and our next person. And to put it into perspective, the person you were at 10 is not the same person you were at 20 or 30 or 40 or 50. You've had a succession of selves from the beginning to right now that have adapted to the realities of this particular present moment. And then we adapt again, constantly changing constantly becoming something else. Wow. Okay. So when we get to that point in our meditation practice, we start to see the world in a little different way. So that was mindfulness meditation. And now we're going to go into concentration meditation, samatha. From my readings, I've come to understand that the Buddha did both kinds of meditation. He was taught how to do samatha meditation, concentration meditation, by the yogis of India when he was Siddhartha Gautama. And he was very good. In fact, some of the yogis wanted him to take over the students because he was much better than the teacher. And Siddhartha said, no, 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 I'm not there yet. I'm looking for something else. I'm looking for a permanent release from this feeling I have of suffering. And I want to continue. I need to practice more. So what is concentration meditation? Well, we can look at it in this way. We sit down, we bring our attention to the tip of our nose and feel the sensation of breath going out and coming in, going out and coming in. And we simply rest on the sensation of breath. Sometimes we need to count. 
because we lose track of the breath. It's very subtle. Sometimes we almost feel like we're gasping for air. And other times it seems like the breath doesn't exist at all. And counting can help us pay attention to the sensation of breath. And a very important thing to consider is that sensation is always happening right now. It doesn't happen tomorrow. It doesn't happen yesterday. It happens right now. So it's a wonderful object of meditation that you always have with you every day, every moment. And adding this, if you're not breathing, you don't need to meditate. So here we are, and we are sitting in our meditation, and five aspects arise. Applied thought, sustained thought, happiness, bliss, and equanimity. Those five things arise because of our concentration on the sensation of breath. So let's figure out what they are. Applied thought and sustained thought. Applied thought is when you bring your attention to the tip of your nose and become aware of the sensation. Sustained thought is when you hold it there. So the first two characteristics of concentration meditation are applied thought and sustained thought. And after a period of time, it could be hours or weeks or months or years, you come to a place where your mind, your attention simply rests on the object of meditation, the sensation of breath, without any kind of effort. So when there's no effort and you're still aware of the sensation of breath, that means applied thought and sustained thought has fallen away. Now the next three aspects come as we go deeper and deeper into the concentration of the sensation of breath. So we have happiness, which is happiness of the mind, we have bliss or pleasure, which is the bliss and pleasure of the body. And we have equanimity or perfect balance. Now, in order to do Buddhist meditation, you have to give stuff up. You don't gain anything. The problem with nirvana is that we are already there, but we have a lot of things preventing us from realizing the fact that we are there. So we need to get these roadblocks out. So we can then come to this place of nirvana or enlightenment in our lifetime. And what that means really is that you don't need to go anyplace. People go to India and ashrams. They make a trek to Nepal. They, they go all over the world looking for their nirvana or enlightenment. And they don't look inside. They continue to look outside. There's a story that I heard about somebody who came home late at night and he dropped his keys by the door, but went to the edge of the yard to look for the keys. Now, somebody was walking by and noticed this whole, this whole thing and said, he had to ask, why are you over here in the corner of your yard looking for the keys that you dropped by your door? And he looked up and said, well, there's more light over here. So sometimes we think there's more light in other areas of the world that will allow us to find our enlightenment, our nirvana, but it's always inside. So we have happiness, bliss, and equanimity. As we go deeper and deeper, we have to give something up. The next level requires us to give something up. 
So the first thing we give up is pleasure, pleasure of the body. It's a wonderful experience. We're always looking for that pleasurable experience in the body. And, and we, we go to places and eat things and drink things and just trying to find that pleasure of the body. But if we're able to give it up, now I have to be, I have to caution people listening that you can't give up pleasure of the body because you don't have any control over it. You're not in charge of turning on or turning off the pleasure of your body. What you're actually doing is you're giving up your attachment to the pleasure of the body. You're giving up your attachment. And why do you want to give up your attachment? Because desire consists of attachment and aversion and desire is the one thing that causes us the most suffering. And if you can figure out how to give up some of that attachment and aversion, you will suffer less right now. So you figured it out. You read a book, you meditated, you reflected on it. You say, okay, I think I got it now. I think I can let go of my desire to have pleasure in the body. And when you do, when you do, you are also giving up your aversion to pain. Aversion to pain, attachment to pleasure. When you give up one, you give up the other one. They're connected. Okay, and now you're resting at an even deeper level of concentration. And you've got two more things. You've got happiness and you have equanimity. Now, happiness is more of a mind state. Pleasure is more of a body state. So when you reflect on happiness and you say, I don't really want to give it up, but if I need to give it up now in this process of meditation, I need to give up my attachment to it. And then I can go even deeper into my concentration meditation. And in giving up my attachment to happiness, I'm also giving up my aversion to unhappiness. Okay, so now it's working. You're really getting into a deep state that has no past or no future. It really doesn't even have a self at this point. You have become selfless in the present moment experience of your life. And now we have one more characteristic, and that's the one we don't want to give up. That's the one we want to stay with. That is called balance. That is called equanimity. That is called having no attachment to this or that. You have now found the middle of the middle path. And there you rest. Now, what happened at this point, it's very similar to nirvana. And some people delude themselves into thinking they finally achieved the final goal. But then the gong rings, you sit up straight, sort of shake your shoulders and all that stuff, all that stuff that you let go of comes right back and you leave the Zendo and get into your car and go onto the 405 freeway and somebody cuts you off and rage starts and you turn your fist, you son of a gun. Why don't you watch where you're going? And all that stuff you learned in the Zendo, all that stuff you experienced in the Zendo, seems like a distant memory now. Wow. So the idea 
is to continue practicing until the practice becomes a performance. And if you play any kind of musical instrument, you will understand that practice is necessary for a good and skillful performance. And we don't know how long we have to practice. In reading the story of the Buddha, he meditated until his last moment on earth. He went into the fourth jhana. He went into that place of equanimity, perfect concentration. And then his body passed away. So our practice is not designed to get us to point A or B or C. Our practice is designed for us to practice. I hope this makes sense. This is like a lot of stuff. There's a, some wonderful books out there that can help you understand what I've just said and go much deeper than I could in the 20 minutes or so that I'm speaking. But, but the meditation aspect seems to be important, especially in the West, because it's not really encouraged in the West. And the results of a good meditation practice, priceless, priceless. So thank you for listening.